Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. Tonight's author on tour is Michael Ondaje, who reads from and discusses his new novel, Divisadero, published by Knopf. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Welcome to the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax Avenue. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Is Can everyone hear me all right? Okay. Thank you so much for supporting our author events, and thank you again for supporting independent bookstores. And since we have such a full house tonight, after the question and answer period, when we get ready to have our books signed, I will call you up by rows, starting with row number one, and then two, and so forth, so you can have a seat a little bit longer. And tonight's event is being podcast on our author, authorsontourlive.com, which you can link to through our website, tatteredcover.com. And if you could please silence your cell phones for the next little while, that would be great. Tonight, it is a great pleasure to introduce award-winning author and poet Michael Ondaatje, who will discuss his new novel, Divisadero. The story is set in 1970 San Francisco, the raucous back rooms of Nevada's casinos and South Central France. It's about a father and his two daughters and his adopted farmhand, and they work a family ranch in California, or family farm in California. From there, the story travels, taking its twists and turns. It's about discovering family, the secrets of the past, love, loss, and redemption. Andace's use of beautiful, haunting language pulls readers into his world. Michael Andace has written four previous novels, a memoir, a nonfiction book on film, and several books of poetry. His novel, The English Patient, won the Booker Prize. Anil's Ghost won the Irish Times International Fiction Prize in the Geller. He lives in Toronto. Please welcome Michael Andace. Thank you. Can you hear? Yeah, great. Um, Okay, so this is a difficult book to read from in bits without confusing you even more. But um, I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to read read three three bits and um, three sections. And I'll begin with the beginning, the prologue, and then the first section, which is sort of told by um, a woman looking back on her youth and childhood and rereading it almost. When I come to lie in your arms, you sometimes ask me in which historical moment do I wish to exist, and I will say Paris, the week Colette died. Paris, August the 3rd, 1954. In a few days at a state funeral, a thousand lilies will be placed by her grave, and I want to be there, walking that avenue of wet lime trees until I stand beneath the second-floor apartment that belonged to her in the Palais Royale. The history of people like her fills my heart. She was a writer who remarked that her only virtue was self-doubt. 
A day or two before she died, they say Colette was visited by Jean Genet, who stole nothing, the grace of the great thief. We have art, Nietzsche said, so that we shall not be destroyed by the truth. The raw truth of an incident never ends. And the story of Coop and the terrain of my sister's life are endless to me. They are the sudden possibility every time I pick up the telephone when it rings some late hour after midnight and I wait for his voice or the deep breath before Claire will announce herself. For I have taken myself away from who I was with them and what I used to be when my name was Anna. By our grandfather's cabin on the high ridge opposite a slope of buckeye trees, Claire sits on her horse, wrapped in a thick blanket. She has camped all night and lit a fire in the hearth of the small structure our grandfather built more than a generation ago and lived in like a hermit or some creature when he first came to this country. He was a self-sufficient bachelor who eventually owned all the land he looked down onto. He married lackadaisically when he was forty, had one son, and left him this farm along the Petaluma Road. Claire moves slowly on the ridge above the two valleys full of morning mist. The coast is to her left. On her right is a journey to Sacramento and the Delta towns such as Rio Vista with its populations left over from the gold rush. She persuades the horse down through the whiteness alongside crowded trees. She's been smelling smoke for the last twenty minutes and on the outskirts of Glen Ellen she sees the town bar on fire. The local arsonist has struck early when certain it would be empty. She watches from a distance without dismounting. The horse seldom allows a remount, and this he can be fooled only once a day. The two of them, rider and animal, don't fully trust each other, although the horse is my sister's closest ally. She will use every trick, not in the book, to stop his rearing and bucking. She carries plastic bags of water with her, and leans forward and smashes them onto his neck, so the animal believes it is his own blood and will calm for a moment. When Claire is on a horse, she loses her limp and is in charge of the universe, a centaur. Someday she will meet and marry a centaur. Most mornings we used to come into the dark kitchen and silently cut thick slices of cheese for ourselves. My father drinks a cup of red wine. Then we walk to the barn. Coop is already there, raking the soil straw, and soon we are milking the cows, our heads resting against their flanks. A father, his two eleven-year-old daughters, and Coop, the hired hand, a few years older than us. No one has talked yet. There's just been the noise of pails or gates swinging open. Coop in those days spoke sparingly, in a low-pitched monologue to himself, as if language was uncertain. Essentially, he was clarifying what he saw, the light in the barn, where to climb the approaching fence, which chicken to cordon off, capture and tuck under his arm. Claire and I listened whenever we could. Coop was an open soul in those days. We realized his taciturn manner was not a wish for separateness, but a tentativeness about words. He was adept in the physical world, where he protected us, but in the world of language he was our student. 
Our father gazed right through Coop. He was training him as a farmer and nothing else. What Coop read, however, were books about gold camps and gold mines in the California Northeast, about those who had risked everything at a river bend on a left turn, and so discovered a fortune. By the second half of the twentieth century he was, of course, a hundred years too late, but he knew there were still outcrops of gold in rivers under the bunch grass or in the pine sierras. Now and then, our father embraced us as any father would. This happened only if you were able to catch him in that no-man's land between tiredness and sleep, when he seemed wayward to himself. I joined him on the old covered sofa, and I would lie like a slim dog in his arms, imitating his state of weariness, too much sun perhaps, or too hard a day's work. Claire would also be there sometimes, if she did not want to be left out, or if there was a storm. But I simply wished to have my face against his checkered shirt and pretend to be asleep, as if inhaling the flesh of an adult was a sin and also a glory, a right in any case. To do such a thing during daylight would have been unthinkable. He'd have pushed us aside. He was not a modern parent. He'd been raised with a few male rules, and he no longer had a wife to qualify or compromise his beliefs. So you had to catch him in that twilight state when he had ceded control to the tartan sofa, his girls enclosed, one in each of his arms. I would watch the flicker under his eyelid, the tremble within that covering skin that signaled his tiredness, as if he were being tugged in mid-river by a rope to some other place. And then I too would sleep, descending into the lair that was closest to him. A father who allows you that should protect you all of your days, I think. Sometimes Claire and I would come down the hill with the car lights turned off in complete blackness. Or we would climb from our bedroom window onto the skirt of the roof and lie flat on our backs on the large table rock, still warm from the day, and talk and sing into the night. We counted out the seconds between meteor showers slipping horizontal across the heavens. When thunder shook the house and horse stalls, I'd see Claire in her bed during the seconds of lightning sitting upright like a nervous hound, hardly breathing, crossing herself. There were days when she disappeared on her horse and I disappeared into a book. But we were still sharing everything then. The Nicasio Bar, the Druid Hall, the Sebastiani Movie Theatre in Sonoma, whose screen was like the surface of the Petaluma Reservoir, altering with every shift of light, and the hundreds or more red wings that always sat on the telephone wires and chirped out loud before storms. There was a purple flower in February called Shooting Star. There were the sticks of willow that Coop cut down and strapped onto my broken wrist before he drove me to the hospital. I was fourteen then. He was eighteen. Everything is biographical, Lucian Freud says. What we make, why it is made, how we draw a dog, who it is we are drawn to, why we cannot forget. Everything is collage even genetics. There is a hidden presence of others in us, even those we have known briefly. We contain them for the rest of our lives at every border that we cross.
Who was Coop, really? We never knew what his parents were like. We never... We were never sure what he felt about our family, which had harbored him and handed him another life. He was the endangered heir of a murder. As a teenager, he was hesitant, taking no more than he was given. At dawn, he'd come out from the sheds like a barn cat, stretching, as if he'd been sleeping for days, when in fact he'd returned home from a pool hall in San Francisco three or four hours earlier, hitchhiking the forty miles back in the darkness. I wondered even then how he would survive or live in a future world. We watched as he muttered, thinking things out, while he stripped down a tractor or welded a radiator from an abandoned car onto a 58 Buick. Everything was collage. <clears throat> I'm going to jump um, to um, sometime later, so the plot has thickened quite a bit. And um, various things have happened. Uh, the family has been dis- disbanded and kind of splintered. And Coop is now a young adult and he's uh, been a gambler in Tahoe where, again, something you know, um, pretty bad has happened. So he's sort of exiled himself and is hiding out in a small town called Santa Maria. In Santa Maria, during the years he was there, Coop would gamble long into the night, returning to his room at the hotel at three or four in the morning. He lived alone, anonymous, within the community of the town. In the early evening, Cooper would drive to a steakhouse on the Taff Road and stand at the bar and drink a bad margarita, then sit down at the table by himself. He was usually out of Jocko's before the main dinner crowd came. He preferred eating alone. Later during the night, he would be surrounded by a gregarious company at the card tables, but here he silently watched the other diners and the tells between couples. He had become preoccupied with a woman who came in every Monday and Friday with a bearded man. Jocko's wasn't known for its fast service, and while Cooper waited, he tried to imagine the man's profession, a surveyor or one of those men who drove insect-like trucks up to planes at airports. The woman in her black-and-white checked woolen skirt and with legs that barely seemed to fit under the table was almost six feet, tall as Cooper anyway, and she was a ripple of energy. She'd leap up and talk to the staff or check a name or a date on one of the posters tacked to the wall and come back with information for her partner. She often had books on the table beside her. Chemistry, he thought he saw in a title once. She was in her early or middle thirties. She always seemed to be there at the same hour with the man, her professor perhaps, or brother. They never touched each other, although they talked constantly while they ate. Like Cooper, they were all, they always sat at the same table. Sometimes he got there first, sometimes they did. Occasionally the woman looked up at him and acknowledged his presence, once charmingly in the middle of her laughter about something, and he had smiled back. So there was a small moment between them that he tucked carefully away. Then sometime in the middle of the meal she would stretch her legs out. She did not fit or belong inside this wooden wall diner where the lighting clarified mostly the wrinkled necks of old gamblers and their season-long partners. Whatever the lighting was at Jocko's, it should have been bottled, he thought, and gone on tour with her, 
its sole purpose to follow this woman for the rest of her life, parting from her only after the funeral rites. What he wanted was to simply look at that face he couldn't read at all. That face, the blonde hair. It wasn't the beauty, it was the variousness. Maybe in Vienna the woman might go unnoticed, but in Santa Maria she was this panther who came in and fit herself somehow between that chair and the table near him every Monday and Friday, opposite a man who perhaps was an amateur magician in this semi-suburban California town who saw her in half in some unhealthy bar down the road. Cooper went back to his rooms at the Santa Maria Inn. He had to admit to himself that he knew nothing about her. He had not even caught her voice. He simply arrived for dinner faithfully at eight o'clock before driving to his card games, and he ate those Spencer steaks cooked on the swimming pool-sized outdoor grill at the back of Jocko's, a medieval scene, the t-shirted staff guiding the meat with giant tongs. Then he played cards until three in the morning as the twelve-ounce steak digested slowly within him. One night he looked up, and there she was, sitting alone. As his head rose, she turned towards him, and without thinking, he gestured a greeting with his hand. She acknowledged it, and he sat there not knowing what to do. Normally he would glance at the couple, who were so engrossed in conversation they were never aware of him. She moved her fork around, on and off the placemat, which gave the diners a history of the restaurant. Cooper's eyes skimmed his own placemat. So, may I join you? She stood and brushed her skirt. He said nothing while she sat down opposite him. Where's your friend, he asked. Oh, who knows? He probably won't be here. She was still settling in. Her clear voice was inches away from him. There was an absence of perfume on her. A strange first reaction. But in most card lounges, women were encased in it, and men had their talcums and sprays. She was mouthing something to herself, a little prayer or a chant, perhaps. He would discover this was a habit, but now, this first time, he sat forward quizzical as if missing something she was trying to impart. What? As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe de ville. I'm sorry. Chuck Berry. I played cards with him once, Cooper told her, when she identified the source of the lyrics. Did he beat you? No, he paused to break it gently. No, I skunked him. He was not too bright about the game. Who else? Who else famous? She nodded. Oh, I don't know, no one else. He had come across no one else as important as the singer and writer of Maybelline in the card halls. As far as he knew, he had not dealt a pair of aces to Alfred Brandle. They spoke haltingly, unable to find a subject that allowed a wide field of conversation. She said nothing about the relationship with her usual dinner partner, though she mentioned that he owned a hardware store. She was reading books on science, but no longer had a university connection. She traveled a lot. Her dad had been in the army, but she didn't see him anymore. I'll have a Spencer, she told the waitress. And a glass of wine? She shook her head. She didn't drink. Cooper had already noticed that. They threw little clues back and forth across the table until about 9.30 when he announced he had to go. Oh, card game at the Guadalupe Dunes west of here with some archaeologists, he said. Oh, 
He had been able to witness her more clearly when she sat at the other table, at an angle from him. This close he had to keep up his end of talk, and also think before offering his answers. This close too many other things existed between them. Will I see you again? Monday and Fridays, he said. He got up to pay the bill, and she remained sitting. Bridget, she slipped him her name as he, as he left. He nodded. Hello, Bridget. If Bridget had not been an addict or a dealer, if she had not been one whose whole life seemed engaged with others, if these qualities had been absent among the clues Cooper had intuited at their first meeting, he probably would have avoided her, would not have had another meal with her at Jocko's the following Friday, or taken that walk to her apartment. Just as in an earlier century, he would not have picked up the carefully dropped glove and returned it to the strolling woman. The knowledge of all he assumed made him feel safe. If Bridget sucked a milky white smoke up through a water pipe or put a needle into her veins, if she found more pleasure in that than in romance, it, it meant he would not be important to her. He would remain at most a fragment in her week. She might, he thought, not even recall him a few months from now. As a competent gambler, his instinct told him she would not be a danger to him. But some people are wrong. <laughs> I'm going to read one more section, and this is uh, one of the sections in France um, uh, where the, there's a character named Lucien Segura who is a writer. By the way, in the last section, it was quite interesting. There is a place called Jocko's, which I strongly recommend for its stakes. And, and um, when the, the legal advisor on this book, as publishers sometimes have, were scanning it, the, the first question they asked me was about, I'd mentioned the slow service at Jocko's, and was this accurate? <laughs> so, um, so it's quite difficult to kind of, you know, Say something about anything now. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> sorry. This is um, this is uh, in the voice of this French writer from an earlier time. The large clock above the mirrors at La Darol Bar has remained at twenty minutes past eleven for the last two weeks. The clockmaker has still not arrived, being somewhere in the south, correcting time along the small villages of the Pyrenees. He will come when he does with rags and oil and needle fine tools. He will lift the heavy machine into his arms, be guided down the ladder by others, and place it on the marble counter of the bar, intentionally taking up the prime space of trade in the cafe. What will occur then is ceremonial. He will insist on his taut espresso and behave with a ponderous authority as if he has been summoned into the town to correct the weakening eyes of the mayor's daughter. He soaks petite flags of cloth in a source of oil, and with tweezers inserts them into the unseen depths of the clock. They are a strange breed, clockmakers, some surly and insensitive to all save the machine about to whir into life, some uncertain as poets about their gift. Because my stepfather, my mother's second husband, was one, I have studied their natures. He, my first clockmaker, never felt his talent as anything special, there were just a few procedures to learn. Now and then the Italians or Belgians would produce something that reversed the cause and effect. But he did not feel himself to be in any way 
different from the market gardener in the way he spoke about his work. And I learned the cautious and also incautious habit of my own work from him. You are given a trade, not a gift. There need not be intensity or darkness in the service of it. Still, I met no other clockmaker like him. By watching him, I learned enough to correct the pace on my own watch, but I would still take any fitting timepiece to clockmakers so I could study the grandeur they brought to their skill. I love the performance of a craft, whether it is modest or mean-spirited. Yet I walk away when discussions of it begin, as if one should ask a gravedigger what brand of shovel he uses, or whether he prefers to work at noon or in moonlight. I am interested only in the care taken and those secret rehearsals behind it, even if I do not fully understand what is taking place. The clock at Le Darol was overtaken by fatigue at least once a year, and the proprietor would send me a message to let me know when the clockmaker was expected, and I would travel to town for the procedure. Up close, once the great object was on the marble counter of the bar, you could read the smaller letters. The clockmaker wiped the appearance of mildew or foxing off the white portal of the dial and then lifted it off the mechanism. I, in order to remain close by, needed to appear humble. He insisted on a paper-like authority. And when told I was a writer, or at least was known to be a writer, he would speak to me rather than the other spectators, as if we were on another professional level of existence. When it was clarified that I was a poet, my status slipped a rung or two, and he muttered some line I didn't quite hear that got a laugh somewhere to his left, a laugh guided by his own. The skill of writing offers little to a viewer. There is only this five-centimeter relationship between your eyes and the pen. Any skill in the divining or dreaming is invisible. Whereas a clockmaker removed his dark cotton jacket, rolled up his sleeves, at which point I would part company from my friends and come closer to the unrolled oilskins and their slim pockets that held tools and oil capsules and his little flashlight for the machine's dungeons. Soon I was almost within the pleasure of his serious demeanor. I could imagine his even greater status in those villages in the Haute Pyrenees where he must have traveled as if on the raised authority of a palanquin. I enjoyed all of this. But I believe only in the humbleness my stepfather had, who would stop in mid-operation on hearing a thrush sing and walk to a window to search it out. Or he would pass me one of his essential knives to sharpen my blunt pencils. He constructed objects for us out of those wheels, dials that were no longer being used, so they'd move like half-formal animals across the dining room table. He was not my father, but he raised me. I learned, I suppose, a manner from him, also that any trade or talent could be shaped discreetly without the sparks of exaggerated drama. And yet, with all his modesty, he loved the grandeur of Victor Hugo and those slow, obedient descriptions that walked towards revolution. And he loved my mother. I saw him on the last days of his life lift that oil-scented right hand and enter its fingers into her ordered hair and rustle it free of its pins, as if he had been offered velvet 
or the fur of a rare animal. Forever I hold that gesture. For me it was perhaps the last remembered pleasure belonging to him. It is the unspoiled core of whatever I know of love and family, and I have not been successful at the craft of it. Our shyness at embracing each other, it rarely happened, did not matter. I felt safe and comforted. There was a calm. The two clocks in the house were silent but precise, and we were safe in time. For just five years, he gave us all that. Thank you very much. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Fote, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks for many more Authors on Tour. This podcast was originally recorded on June 19th, 2007.